If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. And I'd like to give somewhat of an introduction to this passage because um, this passage, Jesus is having a conversation with um, the woman at the well, as she's often referred to, or the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that in John chapter 4, just in this um, just in this conversation that Jesus has, we will spend three weeks. Um, and this week, we will not touch the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, the reason we're, we won't be doing that this morning is because we, we need to understand how we got here. Um, why is it that Jesus is sitting in Samaria by a well and having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and not just any Samaritan woman, but one of ill repute? Um, I, I mean, honestly, to define her, I would have to use some, some language that may be a little too um, aggressive from the pulpit. She was not one of high moral character nor fiber. But when, nonetheless, what you have here is Jesus sitting and having a conversation with this woman that, frankly, no Samaritan wanted to have a conversation with her. She was an outcast. She was not worthy of any conversation, especially one coming from the Messiah. And even to kind of go a little bit past that, a Jew at all. And so how did we get here? Now, what we're going to talk about this morning, I'm going to confess to you, is perhaps a topic that I tremble the most at. Over the past three chapters, we've done a great deal to examine and highlight the deity of Christ. Chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is indeed the divine Son, that He is the monogenes. John, in his commentary, making, uh, examining the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, highlights this yet again. For the past three chapters, we are, we are really without question come to the conclusion that this man named Jesus is actually the Son of God and therefore He is divine in nature. It's, it, the full confession here is it's, it's much easier to preach on the divinity of Christ than it is to preach on his humanity. Now let me tell you why that's the case. Because it's easy to look at Christ and exalt him for he is divine. But should we look at him as the God-man, very often we approach this and I find myself having great difficulty to ascribe humanity to him. Because we exalt him to such an extent as we should as the divine, but rarely do we examine his humanity. And so this morning, as we come to this passage, I'm going to go ahead and tell you there's some trembling in me. Because to discuss these things accurately, and you will notice, hopefully, I will have very precise language this morning because we are examining the God-man in such a degree that we are looking at his humanity in particular. His humanity and his divine nature cannot be divorced by any means, but sometimes the scripture itself highlights one so that we can come to certain, certain conclusions. And so this morning... If you would, as we read John chapter 4, starting in verses 1, going through verses 6, and then jumping down to verse 31, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisee had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Meanwhile, verses 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have, not, and you have entered into their rest, their labor. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, once again, we come uh, pleading with you to bless it. Lord, as we read this story and as we examine the humanity of Christ, Lord, may it be that we come looking to him as our great, um, our, the one to whom we should look, our great example, the one whom we should model our lives after. So Father, we ask and plead, would you bless the reading of your word and the preaching of it? It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. Um, if you're new to Mercy Hill, I just want to kind of give you a way of introduction on how we do sermons here. We like to go verse by verse, word by word through the text. And one of the things we like to do to help you navigate the sermon is to give you a sermon in a sentence. Basically, if there's one thing for you to walk away with this morning, this is really what I want you to understand. We're going to examine this sermon in a sentence from two perspectives. But um, just to kind of give it to you briefly, it is this. The glad submission to God's will is both glorifying to God and nourishment to the saint's soul. Let me read this again. The glad submission to God's will is both glorifying to God and nourishment for the saint's soul. So the first thing that we're going to do this morning is we're going to examine Jesus's submission to the Father. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that in this conversation, there are going to be things that, that are, are, are relatively interesting. And I will even go to the extent to say in our current theological culture, there have been hot button issues that have surrounded this topic. Jesus submitting to the Father. Does this question his equality with the Father? The answer is a resounding no. So let's examine this, con let's examine this um, transition that we find in verses 1 through 6 leading into the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well. First and foremost, I'd like to point out to you that Jesus is leaving a flourishing ministry. Um, John chapter 4 verses 1 through, 1 through 3 says this, Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. If we could, let's just take a moment to examine this phrase because it is relatively important. Um, and the reason it's important is if you, if you examine this, this statement and also if you look previously into the last chapter, you'll discover that what's happening in Judea is John the Baptist's ministry is decreasing exponentially. He is losing, to some degree, those who are following him, not for the sake of them abandoning John, but actually adhering to the teaching of John. They are going after the one to whom John ascribed infinite value. And even the disciples would look at him, he says, and he says, uh, teacher, rabbi, talking to John, he says, all are going to him. And in this, John rejoiced. He said, this, of course they're going to him. He's, he's the bridegroom. They're the bride. They're pursuing him as they should. And that's where we find that famed statement that I, speaking of John, must decrease and the Lord and, and he must increase. And so what's happening in Judea at this time is Jesus' earthly ministry is booming. People are beginning to follow him by the droves. Now, you would consider, if, if from, an, from a worldly perspective, if we were to consider how Jesus could continue to grow his earthly ministry, would you encourage him in the midst of the greatest boom of his earthly ministry that he should leave and go back to Galilee? No. It's Judea. He can establish a base here. He could do absolutely everything to make sure this was his foundation. He could build his disciples up and he could establish an earthly kingdom if that was his desire or his wish. But instead we find him leaving and abandoning to some degree this earthly ministry because there was a call on him to go back to Galilee. Notice the language that it says in verse 3. 
He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now let's remember what took place in Galilee. Galilee is the place of Jesus' first miracle. When Jesus turned water into wine, it was at Galilee that he did this. And so he turns the water into wine. He leaves to go to Passover. And now he's being called back to Galilee. He's being called to go back to this place where he would perform the vast majority of his miracles, even leading into the second of his signs. And so it's interesting that we find him leaving this flourishing ministry for the sake of going back to a place that it really is not well-renowned. He's leaving Judea, the cultural center of the day, to go back to Galilee. Why? Why? I mean, from an earthly perspective, we would consider that would be foolish. Why would you, why would you abandon an, a, a flourishing ministry to go to Galilee? Why would, you, why would you do that? And the answer is very, very simple. Because the Son would be perfectly obedient to the Father. You've heard me mention multiple times that I believe uh, that the gospel is twofold, meaning that we are justified, that in justification we have the forgiveness of sin, but secondly, we have the imputation, the giving away of Jesus' righteousness, that he actually fulfilled everything that was necessary in the law. He had perfect obedience, and so when the Father looks at those whom the Son has ransomed and redeemed, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ. And that's why when we look to this passage, it is not just about Jesus doing something that the Father had said, it is actually about him filling full the righteousness that he would give to his saints. And so if you would, let's continue to examine this. So Jesus is called out of uh, Judah into, uh, Judea into Galilee. And then we see this very interesting language. In verse 4 it says this, And he had to pass through Samaria. First of all, when you read this, you can almost laugh at it and say, Who would dare tell Jesus he had to do anything? And the answer is the Father. The Father gladly would would decree the mission of the Son. He told him where to go. We see Jesus even mention that he does not do anything he does not see the Father doing, and he doesn't even speak anything that he doesn't hear the Father saying. Jesus lived in perfect submission and obedience to the Father. And I want to point this out to you. The language in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. Had there is dea, or in in, in the, the root word is deo, and it's ultimately the idea of being bound to something. You had to go through Samaria. It is not up for negotiation. It is not an option. It is the way that you must go. You are bound to it. And I want you to understand what we have here. What we have here is not an examination of the son submitting to the father because the father is superior. Instead, what we are looking at is the economical difference in the Godhead. I'm going to give you two big words real quickly. This is important, so these are worth writing down. We are not dealing with the ontological nature of the Trinity ontological. That means it is not a matter of his value or essence. I'm going to go ahead and make this statement before we go any further to just reaffirm the Trinity rather quickly. The Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, co-powerful, and co-eternal. There is no distinction in them. They bear the same essence, yet in that they actually are distinct in their persons. Ontologically, they have the same essence, yet they are distinct in their persons. Now, when we get to their persons is where we can examine the economy of the Godhead. Here's the deal. God has revealed that there are unique roles within the Godhead. It does not question their value. It does not change their essence. Each and every one of them are fully and equally God. Yet, 
in the Godhead, there are unique roles and responsibilities. We see this all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 1, we see in creation that there is the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. The Father is the one speaking and creating. And yet we know from John 1, it is the Word by which all things were created. Nothing was created without Christ. Each has their distinguishing role in creation. Not only do we see it there, but we also see it in salvation. There is distinctness in their operations in salvation. The Father elects and sends the Son. The Son works and fulfills all righteousness and it dies in the place of the sinner to actually provide justification. The Spirit of God applies justification and gives the new birth that those might believe and repent. You see, I want you to see the distinctions here. They are absolutely all the exact same in essence, yet they are distinct in their persons. And so when we look at this passage and we say Jesus submits to the authority of the Father, we are not by any means assaulting his Godhood. We are simply examining the fact that he, in his infinite wisdom within the Trinity, said, I will gladly submit to the decree and rules of the Father. Now, the reason this is so important is because there are two heresies that can erupt from this. One is called subordinationism. And in subordinationism, we look at the Son and we actually say that He is inferior to the Father. Friends, this is horribly untrue. You have to then, by necessity, say that Jesus is a creature. We've talked about the woes of saying Jesus is a creature. If He is a creature, if He is not the eternal God, that He cannot save. It is that simple. And not only that, we can take it to such an extreme where we say that there is no economy in, in the Godhead, that there's no distinction in roles. And we can't do that either because the scripture reveals that very, very clearly. And so as we come here and we examine that Jesus had to go through Samaria, my prayer is that we can examine this understanding the intention of Jesus submitting to the rule and reign of the Father. He is intending to fulfill all righteousness for us. He had to go through Samaria. He was bound to go through Samaria because the Father decreed as such and the Son gladly submitted to the rule of the Father. The reason this is good news for us is because if he had not, then he would have been disobedient. And should he have been disobedient, he cannot impute to us perfect righteousness. Friends, when we look at the works of Christ, we often consider him um, being baptized. For instance, he he looks at John, he says, "Uh, no, you must baptize me. And John's, why? To fulfill all righteousness. The works of Christ, each and every one, are the filling full of the righteousness that is required to enter the gates of heaven and be rewarded. And even in these minor moments of him having to go through Samaria, because the Father had decreed it as such, even in this very tiny moment that we would see, he did so out of perfect submission, perfect obedience. It is the filling full of the righteousness that we desperately need. And so let's examine this obedience. And I want you to notice that in regard to this topic, we see the, I mean, ultimately we see Jesus, Jesus' humanity more highlighted than almost anywhere else in scripture. It's an incredible, incredible passage. Let me show you why we can understand that this is a highlighting of Jesus' humanity. First and foremost, we see in verse six, it says this, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. Let's just remember everything we just talked about, about the co-equality of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That means that in Genesis chapter 1, when God called things into being, when he looked at nothing and said, be, it is through the word that that was created. This creature, the one that, I mean, this, this God who is upholding the universe by the word of his power is finding himself sitting at a well and his legs are weary and weak. They tremble a bit. He's made a long journey. 
He's taken an extensive walk and he finds himself sitting down at this well. And the reason this is so very important is because what you see here is Jesus's obedience is completely and totally unhindered. And the reason that he highlights his humanity here is he's pointing out the fact, John is making it clear to you, it's not as though he doesn't experience the weakness that we do. His obedience was unhindered by the weakness that he actually felt. I made a point not too long ago that um, there are men who argue that, um, that, that need is a creature word and God knows nothing of it. While there is some truth to that, Jesus condescended to man. And, and what we see here, he's tired. He, he needs rest. Not only does he need rest, but we also see that he is thirsty. He needs water. Can you consider for just a moment the incredible, I mean, the statement that Jesus walks along this journey and has probably ran out of water. He turned water to wine just a couple of weeks ago, months ago perhaps, and now he's walking along the way and he doesn't perform a miracle to provide water for himself. Instead, he finds himself sitting at a well asking a Samaritan woman who is of ill repute to give him some water. I mean, he's, he's thirsty. Not only is he thirsty, we can look all the way down in verse 31 and his, his um, disciples look at him and they say, Rabbi, eat. They know the last time that he had eaten. They know that he is in need of food. And the reason I want to examine this is because I want you to see that in Jesus' humanity, he was perfectly obedient despite the fact that he dealt with the same weaknesses we do. Let's examine these really quickly from our perspective. Uh, Jesus was tired. Friends, have you ever been tired? Whenever I think about this, I think about the many men in our congregation who work incredible long hours. They work hard. They come home, and the first thought probably hitting their head is, I'm about to hit my recliner, and I'm going to fall asleep, and things will be grand. Yet, we know that there is an obedience that is, that is given, there's a command given to the father of the household to be the one who works on the, on the, on the soul of his wife. We know not only that, but his responsibility is to train up the children the way they should go, that they might not depart from it. They have clear commands, not only in their work and in their labor out of the home, but clear commands in the home. Friends, I understand that very often we come home and we're tired and we think to ourselves, we can't possibly be obedient to the commands that God gives the husband for the home because we're exhausted. We've been working, we've been laboring. But friends, Jesus felt the same weakness and yet was perfectly obedient. He experienced the fatigue. Don't even get me started on thirsty. This is absolutely insane. Consider for just a moment that really there are only two times that I can recall that Jesus mentions his thirst. One is here and the other is at the cross. One is here where he is looking at the Samaritan woman at the well. His thirst, not only because of the obedience that he would submit to the Father, but also because his thirst, he was going to this well so that he might have something to drink. It is in God's providence that he experienced this thirst, not only here, but also to come, that that thirst that he experienced would never hinder him from fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And if you notice, even as you consider Jesus's thirst on the cross, it is an incredible thing because he says, I thirst. And the reason it's so interesting, it's in brackets in that text. And it says, he did this to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus submitted perfectly to the rule of the father, even amidst an infinite thirst. Not a thirst like this, a thirst that we know nothing of. And can, you can even imagine for just a moment, I, I confess to you that every time I walk up here to preach, I take a sip of water real quickly because when the mouth is dry, sometimes it's difficult to speak. I can't imagine the languish of the son's soul as he is being crucified and he realizes, I must say, I thirst for the sake of fulfilling righteousness. That was labor for him. He thirsts. Not only is he thirsty, he is hungry. In our day and time, if you would consider for just a minute, a minute the, the, the term we use, if you've heard this before, hangry. Have you ever been there? Hangry. 
We find ourselves, when we grow hungry, immediately we feel our weakness. And we can be short and coarse with people. If you'd like to see this, go to a restaurant and watch people who it is taking just a little bit too long for them to get their food. All of a sudden, they don't conduct themselves in a Christ-like manner because they're hungry. Hangry is a thing. I get it. But I want you to understand, Jesus, in the midst of this one conversation, in the midst of this just singular moment where he's having a conversation with a woman who he shouldn't be having a conversation with at all based upon the, 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 the norms of the day, he is in, in the midst of human weakness. He's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry, and he says obedience is the command. And he does not skimp, he does not use an excuse. I'm tired, I can't really have this conversation right now. I'm too thirsty to, to tell her of the things of God because my, my, my tongue is still sticking to the roof of my mouth. I want you to notice, by the way, that in the conversation that we find in John 4, he actually never gets water. She never draws water for him. This entire time, at the end of the conversation, he's still thirsty. And yet it doesn't matter because what you find is in the midst of his thirst, he realizes there is one present who is in desperate need of living water. You see, Jesus fulfilled absolutely every ounce of obedience. And when you consider his humanity, it is in the obedience of the true God, true man, that we can actually have true righteousness. It is only in his genuine humanity that he can be our representative. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. We see this demonstrated here. And then he goes on to say, this is incredible. He goes on to say, I have other food. If you would jump down with me to verse 31. In verse 31, it says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I love this statement. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The reason I love this, and I wonder how frequently Jesus became frustrated with his disciples because he says things to them so frequently, and they miss the point altogether. And so if you look at the following verse, it says, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? Has anyone brought him something to eat? They're bickering within each other, having this conversation. Like, does, who gave him food here? Like, we've only been gone for a couple of minutes. And Jesus is not making reference to any physical food at all. He's actually making reference to a better food. You see, in reality, um, what you find here is Jesus is saying that far greater than rest for my weariness, far greater than water for my thirst, and far greater than food for my belly is being obedient to the Father. It actually provides something for the soul. And let's consider just for a moment food. Because for us to examine this, I think it's important for us to examine the huge role that food plays in our life. The moment we wake up in the morning, more often than not, we would go to the refrigerator and find something to eat. It, 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 is, it is the driving force. And should you go without food, you immediately feel its effects. You feel weak, you feel frail, and you feel feeble. And yet what you find here is Jesus making such, placing such value and obedience to the Father that he calls it food. It is that which satisfies and sustains. He looks at it and he says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Meaning that in this prolonged trek to Galilee through Samaria, he had been considering how he would be obedient to the Father. And not only would he, was he considering the obedience that he would have, he was considering how it would nourish his soul. We forget this. I'll deal with this in a moment. I'm trying not to jump ahead. It's very difficult. We forget that obedience to the Father is overwhelmingly satisfying. And the reason we forget that is because we place higher value on the food that would satisfy our belly, the water that would satisfy our thirst, or the bed that would satisfy our weariness. We place higher value on our comfort than we do in our obedience. We place higher value on our earthly rest than we do in our heavenly rest. 
And so as you see here, Jesus is saying to do the will of the Father is the food. So he's, he's having this conversation. He says, this is that which nourishes my soul. And then he goes on to take it just a step further in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and, and to accomplish his work. I love this language because we're looking future here. It is not making reference to the conversation that Jesus has just had. It is instead making reference to the actual completion of the mission that God has set out for him. Friends, when we see this passage, it is not looking just at a conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at the well. It is instead looking forward to his death, burial, and resurrection. It is the completion of his work. It is that moment where we look to the cross and we see that great exchange of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, that he might grant that to us, and at the exact same time, taking our sin debt and paying it in full. That is is the greatest joy of the Son, is to be obedient to the Father and to rescue and to and redeem that which was lost. He says, that is the greatest joy of my soul. Would you consider for just a moment, had that not been the greatest joy of his soul? And I know that I'm playing a little bit of a game here, but I need you to understand. Friends, his whole life was completely caught up in being obedient to the Father for the sake of fulfilling all righteousness. Now, I would like to point this out, though. It is not the fruit that is the reward. Please hear me when I say this. If you notice here, Jesus does not say, my food is to eat the fruit of my labors. He doesn't. He's not making reference to the reward for his labors. He's not making reference to that which would be produced from it. He is instead making reference to the labor in and of itself. It's so vitally important that we understand this. The reason that Mercy Hill's value in regard to labor is not fruitful labor, but faithful labor, because labor is actually a reward in and of itself. When Jesus actually lives out perfect obedience, he does so for the sake of perfect obedience. His delight is to please the Father, is to bring him glory, fame, and renown. His delight is to be obedient to it. And when you look at this, Jesus is saying, it's not the fruit of my labor, it's the labor in and of itself that drives me. He loves to be obedient to the Father. The beauty of this, before we go any further, is that his obedience to the Father is actually ascribed to us. This is the foolishness of the gospel. I mean, genuinely, if you would consider for just a minute that the gospel is not the forgiveness of your sin alone. It is actually the cancellation of a record of debt, and not only a cancellation of the record of debt, but all of the merits of Jesus' perfect obedience being credited to your account. He was obedient without fault. Even to the point where in God's divine providence, he would find himself sitting at a well because the Father had decreed it as so. Not only to go to this place, but to go through Samaria, one that was hated and despised. He said, it's irrelevant, the socioeconomic norms of the day. It's irrelevant of my thirst, my hunger, my weariness. God has decreed and I will obey. And that is the obedience that is credited to the account of the saint. We look at it and we consider the grand gestures that Jesus does, but friends... Uh, it's in the details, it's in the minutia of his life that we see that perfect righteousness. I can't tell you the need to hear this from my own soul because far too often my labor is actually not focused on obedience. It's, it's placed on the fruit. The problem with that is sometimes we don't see the fruit. The problem is sometimes the fruit may never come. Perhaps many times we share the gospel, the gospel goes out for judgment instead of salvation. What do we do with that? Is our labor in vain? The answer is a resounding no. We labor faithfully because God has given us the grand privilege to labor for him. Jesus labored because it was his grand privilege to be obedient to the Father. It was the food. It was that which satisfied his soul. Now, the beauty of this is we don't stop there, but instead we are invited into that labor. I want you to notice the language we find in verse 35. 
So Jesus makes this statement concerning himself. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In verse 35, it says, Do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. The beauty is the fields are ready. And I have to take a pause here because I'm going to transition just a moment. He's having a conversation with his disciples, with those who have been following him faithfully. But I would argue, and I think this is a safe argument, just as I can argue that the Great Commission is not given just to the disciples, but also to any that would follow Jesus faithfully. Friends, the fields are ready for harvest. In this particular day, as the disciples would look out over the hillside and they would see the Samaritans begin to run up the hill to Jesus, they would see, yes, a harvest is coming. The harvest is actually ready. And my friends, understand the harvest is actually now. Very clearly, we understand that salvation is, uh, that today is the day of salvation, that we go out proclaiming a gospel message because there will be a moment where the doors will be closed. He will return and no longer will the gospel go out for the purpose of salvation. But here below, we are invited into a labor. Not only are we invited into a labor, we're invited into a labor where the fields are ready. We can actually go out and share the good news. And by God's grace, we might see a great harvest. But nonetheless, should we not see a great harvest, it doesn't matter because the labor is the reward. We're invited into fields that are ready. Not only that, in verse 36, it goes on to say this, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Let's break this Uh, verse apart real quickly. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. I want you to see the focus here of the laborer. The laborer's intention is to reap and receive wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Notice where his eyes are fixed. Notice where his eyes are fixed. His eyes are not fixed here below. His eyes are not fixed on his own weariness. Instead, he is thinking about eternal fruit. He is thinking about an eternal reward. And so what we find here is that both the sower and the reaper are rejoicing because they are actually gathering eternal fruit from their labor. That there actually is a reward in labor in and of itself, but there is actually even more than that. There is an eternal reward for faithful labor. We see this um, to some degree brought into clarity um, from the conversation that Paul or the the, the uh, First Corinthians, where Paul makes the point that Paul sowed, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Both sower and reaper rejoice ultimately because God is receiving glory, and if there is a growth, we know that it is produced from God Himself. Uh, thirdly, in verse thirty-eight, it goes on to say this. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. We are reaping where another labored. I would like to consider for just a moment, we see this grand grace of God to even include the Old Testament prophets in regard to those that have labored. But I would argue that the greatest laborer in the field was obviously the Christ. The Messiah is the one who actually labored for the souls of his bride, his church. What a grand privilege it is that we are invited to labor in that field. Have you ever stopped to consider that uh, one of the reasons we see Paul say things, I do all things for the sake of the elect, that he is going out or even taking the point from, I believe it was William Carey, the, 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 the father of modern missions. His intention was to go and to see a people that God had chosen and died and rescued to see them come to saving faith in Christ. That's the, the, the birth of modern missions movement was based on that truth. Friends, we have this grand invitation to enter into the labor of Christ. He's accomplished it. He simply gives us the mouth to go and to share the good news because, friends, people will not come to faith in Christ apart from the gospel message. Do not be mistaken. The gospel must go out, and by God's good favor, he has invited us to labor with him in that. So the question then, if all of this be true, that, all, that Christ has fulfilled perfect righteousness and that we have been invited into the same labor, that he, um, into a labor with him, how then do we labor? 
How do we labor? This is sweet. First and foremost, we labor in glad submission to the Father. Isn't it interesting that what's highlighted here is every excuse that we could possibly come up with. Every excuse for disobedience is here. I'm tired, I, don't, I can't. I'm hungry, I gotta, I gotta do this first. I'm thirsty, I just can't have this conversation right now. Even to the point where he highlights the fact that there are social norms that will often be violated by obedience to the Father. Every excuse is tossed out because if the highest value is glory to the Father, then every other value fades in the light of that great truth. We do the work, we submit, we labor faithfully because we have our eyes fixed on the supreme value of obedience to the Father. That is actually the reward. Now, the interesting thing about this is I would add this last one, we must labor as hungry saints. Have you considered for just a moment what it would be like should we actually believe and, and, and live a lifestyle that is convinced that doing the will of the Father is actually sustaining to my soul? It gives me life. It nurtures me. You see, I would argue that the saint would probably be the most, uh, should, should we believe this great truth? Should we believe that when Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, friends? I would argue that from Ephesians chapter 2, we see that we have uh, been rescued and redeemed and we have been actually given labor, good works. The whole purpose of redeeming us was to, was to obviously give a love gift to the Father, but at the, to the Son, but also at the exact same time to give us an opportunity to labor in those fields. And friends, should we actually believe that faithful labor is nourishing to the soul? Would we not be the most laborsome people ever? Would we not be hungry to know that as we labor, there is fruit, there is reward, there is not only fruit here below, but there is also a gathering of eternal life, a gathering of this fruit that he's making reference to in verse 36. And so my plea for you this morning is not only first and foremost that you would rest. The plea is simple, rest. What I'm encouraging you to rest in is the fact that Jesus has actually fulfilled all righteousness. The saint doesn't rest unless he understands this. You need to understand that in Christ and in Christ alone is perfect righteousness fulfilled. It is not for you to work up. It is not for you to labor toward. Instead, it is for you to labor from. It is not you laboring that you might add something to your salvation or make God like you more. Instead, it is you laboring because you know that the greatest gift here below is to be obedient to the Father. Christ exemplified this for you. So we rest, but secondly, have some greed. Have some greed. Long to be nourished from obedience. Strive each and every day of your life to be nourished from the food that comes from obedience. Friends, the labor set out for you. We see not only very clear commands that we find in the scripture to be obedient to the Father. That means things like putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That means going forth into the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It means fathers loving your children well, training them up in the way they should go. It means doing soul work with your wife, seeing them mature and grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. It means that you mothers care for your home and that you actually have a strong investment in the fear and admonition that you would see grow in your children. Obedience is what we should be greedy for every day of our life. We should long for it. And by God's grace, we'll be nourished by it. The reason we highlight the faithful labor is this. Friends, if we do not faithfully labor, not only will we rob ourselves of the joy of obedience, we will rob ourselves of future joys in eternity, 
But I would argue one of the greatest tragedies would be that we might experience the Christian life free from ever watching others be converted without ever harvesting that which Christ labored for. They will be harvested, do not misunderstand. But what a joy and a privilege that God gives us the opportunity to labor in that field that many may come to faith and we might be, be people who are sitting on the front row to watch.